Thanks for joining us on the New Beginnings Podcast, where our goal is to help people connect with Christ. We hope you enjoy listening. This is it, week two of our series called You Asked For It. Uh, I love this stuff. I was telling somebody the other day, like, I really... Uh, I'm a Bible nerd. I study a lot. I read a lot. And, and I really enjoy two things. I really enjoy like teaching like to, to an entire crowd or church. And then I love one-on-one conversations. And I feel like we basically just, we push those together. We're like doing a live, big, huge conversation. And so anyway, and I talk to people all the time and I counsel with people and they, that, you know, we're, we're kind of digging through the complexities of life and the questions and the deep questions of life. And so really we, we just thought, let's just do a big, this is a big counseling section. So I'm going to, I'm going to work you out today. You're going to be fine by the time you leave here today. But um, anyway, but you know what we did was we started collecting questions. And you know what? This is what's cool, Nate. Is like we we did this before years ago, and we got in like a decent number of questions. We have got a flood of questions in now. Like we have too many questions. I can't even cover them all. We've got so many. And so if you feel like I didn't I didn't hit your question, just email me. I'll I'll get you yours personally done or whatever. But man, so many questions. And last week, if you weren't here, I would really go encourage you. You can go watch online, YouTube, whatever, um, podcasts, any of that stuff. Go watch because what we really do is is we really work through just kind of like a a, a broad stroke of questions. But I think what I really tried to do last week is set a tone to say, listen, is it's great to ask questions, right? And we talked about that, like if you ask no questions, you get no answers, right? But if you ask profound questions, you can get profound answers. But it's not just that we ask questions. I think, I think Christians in the last, I don't know how many years, ever since I've been in church life, uh, man, sometimes I find that Christians ask questions in weird ways and they ask questions in such a way to create divisions. It's almost like, well, do you believe this? Cause I believe this. And we're always trying to figure out where, where we differ. And the reality is, is we agree on the vast majority of things. And, and so that, that's where we want to ask questions humbly, ask questions curiously ask questions with like a with, with a spirit that just wants to learn and connect and grow and anytime we get so absolutely because this is what i find is that people get real certain about their beliefs and the longer that i've been in christianity and the longer i've been a student of scripture the more i realize that there are brilliant people who look at the scriptures and yet come to different conclusions and they both love jesus and they both honor the scriptures but they've come to, which means this if both of them can make a logical case for or a reasonable case for certain viewpoints, there's no absolute certainty there. And so we said this last week, where there is not certainty, there ought be humility. Yeah, so we want to ask questions with an incredible amount of humility because whenever we're locked into our certainty, we will rarely ever learn anything new. We'll miss out on maybe something new God wants to teach us. And, and, then, and in doing so, we might just become obnoxious if we're so absolutely certain. And so what we decided was this, is that the goal of questions was really to deepen our understanding, not deepen our divisions. And so that's the goal and the spirit behind all of these questions. And so a lot of the answers to these questions is going to be, I don't know. Some of the questions are going to be, hey, there's a couple different viewpoints. Um, sometimes you won't be able to nail me down on what exactly I believe. And that's because that belief might be fluid even. And I think that's okay with a lot of things. And so anyway, that's it, man. We're going to dive in today. We get into our Bible questions, our God and Bible questions. So, Nate, take us away. Are you on? All right. Check one, two. All right. Everybody said good job. Come on. 
Uh, my first question is not for you, actually. It's for you guys. Uh, have you guys tried the apple cider back there? It is so good. It's so it is sick. really good. It's my first time trying apple cider, so... Are you for real? I am healed today. This is healing juice. You've never had apple cider before? Have you had a... Um, Tepe before? No, I okay, haven't. Okay, that's yeah. African dish. Yeah, that's <laughs> why. But apple cider, you've been in America for 15 years. Yeah. Hey, listen, let's go into the question, shall you we? Had, How, you ever had a pumpkin spice latte? I have not. I no. haven't either. It's okay. a white thing. I think a bunch of white people at Starbucks drink All that, right. So. Question number one. There we go. All right. Hey, we want to thank you guys for uh, submitting all your questions. Of course, Pastor Sauce said we had over 200 plus questions. We want to thank you. And, uh, and let's jump right in. The first question is, Pastor Todd, do you believe in election or free will? In other words, do you believe in Calvinism or free will? I went and voted if that's what you're referring to. So I believe in the elections. <laughs> Election. No, this is, yeah, Calvinism. Anybody grow up in a Reformed church or have experience in a Reformed church, anything like that? Yeah, so there's no hands. Okay. Well, I can make quick work of this then. Uh, cause I, I have a lot of like dear friends that are Calvinists and man, they like, they like to argue usually. So anyway, uh, Calvinism is a belief. And, and then so the other word that you would hear used would be Armenianism. This is really nerdy Bible stuff. Anyway, so um, this is so there's this guy named John Calvin who, along with Martin Luther, were really leaders of the Reformation back in like the late 1500s. And so, uh, but you know, of all the incredible things they did, one of the things they did was they got really locked into this belief called election. And election was this idea that God had chosen a specific group of people to be saved, and they couldn't resist it even if they tried, and you were either kind of chosen or you weren't. Um, and then this other guy named Jacob Armenian came along really just one generation later. He was actually raised in, and trained in a reformed school, but he was reading the scriptures, and he said, hey, I just, I think I disagree with this, man. Look at what about this scripture, what about this scripture? And it's really this debate at its core that sometimes a lot of it's just going to come down to, do you believe in God's sovereignty or mankind's free will? And I would say the answer is you don't have to choose between one or the other. It's, it's both and, and I think God is perfectly capable of balancing that and, and figuring that out in all of his godness and divineness and brilliance and, 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 Omniscience. And so anyway, uh, I, I would just say that, 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 yeah, we believe that God is absolutely sovereign, but I do believe that mankind has a free will. I just think when you read the scriptures from Genesis all the way through, because to be a strict Calvinist or a strict person on election, you really would have to throw out certain scriptures. I mean, some, like, some basic ones. Like, you'd almost have to throw out John 3, 16, that God died, or God sent his son to die for the whole world, and that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life or that God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, which is Paul speaking to Timothy. And so I just think you have to throw out too many scriptures. And so I think whenever there's, again, there's a viewpoint where there are some scriptures that seem to lead you to say this, but there's also some scriptures that seem to lead you to say that you either have to interpret one by the other, or you have to find the balancing point in there. And I think as, as again, when there's not certainty, there ought be humility. And so I think drawing these hard lines in the sand and saying, it's absolutely this, again, you'd have to throw out a lot of scriptures. And I just don't think that's wise. I think, I think sometimes there's these wonderful tensions in the scripture. And I think that's what makes the Bible so great. It's like, oh, where is it? Where's the, where's the tension? Where's the balancing point at? And then just leaning into it and trusting God, our heavenly father, that he is um, all knowing and all wise and a perfect righteous judge. And I'll let him figure that out. I'm not going to worry about it. Amen. That's, that's my take on it. Amen. All right. Question number two, why did God create the tree of knowledge of good and evil? If it didn't exist, would mankind not have fallen? 
I mean, that's a great question, isn't it? And you know what? It really, it taps into this idea of free will again. So uh, if mankind is given free will, if you really believe Adam and Eve were in the garden and had the ability to choose, because if they didn't have free will, you're like, well, God made them choose. So you get into these weird ideas like God made them choose evil if they, they didn't have a choice of their own. And so um, if, if Adam and Eve, okay, so here's what you have to think about free will, right? Free will is the ability to choose and make your own decisions, right? You woke up, you chose to put that outfit on. You woke up, you chose to do whatever, you chose to come to church this morning, and every choice that you have was yours, right? The free will requires a free will environment. Does that make sense? Like, all right, I'm going to dime Nate out real quick here. Okay, Nate likes Shirley Temples, okay? It's kind of weird, but he does. Okay, when we go to a restaurant, he says, my wife would like a Shirley Temple, yes, but really it's, my it's wife. Nate. It's not for me. And so, so, here, so here's what happens, though. Imagine I said, Nate, I have one law as the Lord thy Todd, and I have this one law, and the law is you cannot have a Shirley Temple, right? But there are no Shirley Temples, right? I can't, I can't, then, because if if he, he would never have the option to choose whether to obey me or disobey me, he would have to have the option. If there is no option, there really is no free will. So every, every, every bit of free will that you believe you have, you also have to have a free will environment. And, And I think this too, think about this. If you're a parent, you'll, you'll maybe understand this. Sometimes when you're a parent or when your kid, like, you're asking them to do something, your kid's like, well, why do I got to do that? Shut up and do it anyway. That's what you really want to say. You're probably good parents. So you're like, look, I need you to do this. because, and you, But sometimes you don't have time for an explanation of everything. Sometimes you just want them to do it, right? Because if I, let's say this. Let's say that I have to explain something to you every single time for it to make sense. And then you're finally like, well, that makes sense. Okay, well, I'll do that. Well, really, you're never obeying. You're just agreeing, right? Like I made it make sense and now you're just agreeing. So like, why did God put that tree in there? And really not even tell him why. And there's nothing wrong with knowledge. I mean, knowledge is a good thing. And why, why can't I have this? If God had to explain everything, Adam and Eve wouldn't have been able to obey. They would just be able to maybe agree. So at some point, there's this little thing out there that God says, hey, I just want you to trust me. There's certain things in life you're not going to understand, and I just want you to trust me. Because as a parent, you know this about your kids. There's some stuff that even if you tried to explain it to them, they wouldn't fully understand. Well, the difference between you and your five-year-old is a much smaller gap than the difference between you and God. So your ability is to trust. Be like, you know what? I don't know why God said that, but I'm just going to trust it and do it. I'm going to, I'm going to trust, and I don't have to have an explanation for everything. And so, anyway, I do think, yeah, the the tree is necessary, or you don't actually have free will. Great answer. Okay, so this one, many people ask this question right here. Why is there still so much suffering in the world when God is all loving? Man, that's a, that's a really, really hard question. Um, there, there, and I have no definite answers for you, just so you know. So, like, there is no, like, I've got it. It's not. It's, it's incredibly, incredibly complicated. And there's really two sides to this. So, like, if you think about suffering... Um, if, if you've experienced suffering or especially if you're experiencing it now, I mean, no logical answer will do for you. It, it just won't. So there's really two sides to this answer. There's a logical part and then there's an emotional part. And, and I would say the emotional part is this. So whenever somebody is suffering, don't try to go and answer all their questions. I remember I, I was, um, there was a woman, her son came to our church and he died, uh, really tragically and out of nowhere. He was only in his thirties. And, um, I went and met with the mom and, and the mom was like, can, can you explain why this happened? And I said, no, I have no idea, but this is awful. And I'm so sorry. 
And she goes, thank you so much. Because apparently when she was a little girl and her dad died, this preacher came over and tried to like explain all these little doctrinal things about why she was like, and I was so, I'll just say it, she was, I was so pissed at this preacher for trying to tell me that it was God's will and this and that and the other. I'm like, no, 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 I wouldn't, I'm not, I'm dumb, but I'm not that dumb. And so I will not do that to you. And so I just, you, you know what you do when people are suffering? You sit in silence. You speak when spoken to. You love people. You hug people. You pray for people. You, 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 you give compassion and love. I'd say that's what you do when people are suffering. Now, the logical answer, the logical answer is kind of cold comfort, if that makes any sense at all. Like it's not, but, but here, here's the logical answer to this, to the issue of suffering. Part of suffering comes from people, right? So this goes back to that free will thing. So like, if you experience suffering because of another human being, that one's pretty easy to look at and say, well, you know, God, for whatever reason, decided that it just, Give us our freedom and let us choose and make decisions. And because of their terrible or foolish or evil decisions, um, you know, they, they were able to do that. And that brings into all kinds of things. C.S. Lewis said something really interesting. It made me think about it for quite a while. He said, actually, all evil comes from good. He said, you couldn't even have evil without good. It comes out of it. He goes, because think about all evil. Evil is a form of like free will, which is a good thing. It's a form of, of your mind working, of your body working, of creativity working. It comes from actually desires, which desires are good things. And it's only until those desires are corrupted do you begin. So, so he was, it was like, it was one of those moments where I was like, oh wow. So, so evil only comes from good. Now, the other, the other thing is, is just simply that like, if you were to say, hey, look, I just don't believe in God because there's evil and suffering and whatever. Um, the problem with that is, is again, you can't even say something is evil or wrong without God. If you're just space dust floating through the universe, there is no good or evil or good or bad or good or wrong. It doesn't, it doesn't exist. There's preferences. You could say, I'd prefer that not happen. I'd prefer that person not punch me in the face. I mean, that's preferred. But I can't say that it's objectively morally wrong or evil. Why? Because anytime you say something is good or bad, you're, you're, you're basically pulling on some type of higher moral law. And if you go back to a higher moral law, well, who determines what that moral law is? At, at some point, you're, you're drawing on a higher moral law that is given by a moral law giver. So to determine that anything is good or bad or anything is right or wrong, ultimately you're pointing back to God. So for you to say, I don't think God exists because there's suffering in the world, it's almost like you, you just cut off the legs of your own chair. You can't even sit down anymore because you've called on something that doesn't exist if God actually doesn't exist. So anyway, so I, the, the logic of it is this. We don't know why. We don't understand everything. Um, but we do believe this. We believe God is our righteous judge and that this is, this is the beauty of eternity. This is the beauty of redemption. This is the beauty of God being able to reconcile all things. And so even though I can't make suffering or make sense of my suffering now, here's what, here's, I'll, I'll end on this one because we got to move. Here's what I know for sure. If God allows suffering, I may not be able to know why. But I know for certain that it's not because he doesn't love me. Because the cross is proof of that. If, if, if Jesus never came and never suffered on the behalf of all of humanity, maybe you could question that. Well, I don't know why God lets me suffer. I can tell you this. It's not because he doesn't care. Because if he didn't care, he wouldn't have entered into humanity's story and taken on all suffering. Because here's the thing, too. You ever think about this? Like, like, um, like my dog is a squirrel killer. Uh, She's incredible. She's so fast. She's a squirrel killer. And I've never once been like, Roxy, how dare you kill that squirrel? You did something very immoral today, little puppy. It's just, it's just a doggy dog, right? Doggy squirrel. Um, 
And, and, and you, you almost think, well, that squirrel probably doesn't experience suffering the way humans experience suffering. They're not as conscious as we are. They're not aware of their emotions and thoughts. Is the squirrel suffering? Sure. Do they suffer the same way a human suffers? No. Um, if God is God, think about how much more his suffering would have been experienced compared to our suffering. And think about Jesus' suffering. It wasn't that he suffered one life. He suffered the sins of humanity. So you can say that by suffering, I don't understand it. But you couldn't say it's because God, it's because God doesn't love me. You couldn't say that. Because Jesus took all suffering on himself for the sake of humanity. That's so. awesome. And I love what you said. When people are suffering, practice empathy. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Next question. How old does the Bible say the universe is? Oh, man. We, I think we dived into this a little bit last week. Like with, like, so it doesn't say. It doesn't say how old the universe is. Now, again, there's all kinds of different ways of looking at Genesis. And, and there's all kinds of theories on like, well, God created the heavens and the earth. And then two, three verses later, he starts doing these kind of like in the first day he created this. And so literalists would say uh, that's a 24-hour period, which is interesting because I don't think the sun's around until day three or whatever. And so... Um, and, and so again, you, you can, you, here's what we all believe. We all believe, I think, when we read the Bible, that God created the heavens and the earth, right? I think how he did it is left up for debate, and I think that's okay. I think as long as it's kind and, and loving debate. Um, I, I would say it doesn't matter. We weren't there. So I'm not certain. I wasn't there. I didn't see it. So I'm not certain. So there's humility there. There's all kinds of theories that there's a gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2. There's this idea that they aren't days. There are day ages. There are other people. There are tons and tons of people that are Jewish scholars that believe everything about Genesis 1 is purely poetic and theological in nature and has no scientific bearing whatsoever. I mean, there's just, there's just all kinds of different ways to think about it. I did find this quote from St. Augustine, though, and I thought this quote was so good. I want to read this quote for you. He said this because he was finding Christians apparently debating. Because you got to remember, remember Copernicus? The, the, it was the church that just totally jacked this guy. Because he told them that the earth was not fixed. Because if you take all scriptures absolutely literal about creation, then the earth is fixed. And so Copernicus is like, it's not fixed, we're floating. We're, t- we're actually, we're not even the center, where the sun is the center and we're floating. And they just hammered him for it. I mean, it was, it got ugly. And it made Christians look really bad. And so again, you don't, it, it, you don't want to have that. Because if you take scripture absolutely literally, then you'd, you'd have to say Copernicus was wrong. And nobody really thinks that anymore. And so again, looking at Genesis as a, put it this way, if you went to the library, you wouldn't find the Bible in the scientific section of the library. It's because the writers of scripture didn't start out with the intention of, hey, let me give you some scientific information. As a matter of fact, they gave you theological information. Because what we know now is, is that the, the most ancient document that they have is a document called the Enuma Elish, which is this Mesopotamian document. And when they first found it, they said, oh, look, the Bible stole a bunch of stories from this other book. And then they looked at it again and kept studying. And they're like, oh, no, no, that's not what it is. Actually, the Bible is a counter argument to the theological views of their day. And they were trying to show you how God is not like this. Because the Enuma Elish has these weird stories about how like this God and this God had sex. And then this God had war with this God. And because of the blood that was spilled, they made humans out of the blood. And you're like, what in the world? This is what people believed? This is terrible. Let me tell you what God is actually like. And they wrote Genesis. Do you see the difference now? So, so the, anyway, but let me tell you what Augustine said. He said, if they find a Christian 
mistaken in a field, a scientific field, which they themselves know well, and hear them maintaining his foolish opinions about our books, the books of the Bible, how are they going to believe those books in matters concerning the resurrection of the dead, the hope of eternal life, the kingdom of heaven, when they think their pages or our pages are full of falsehoods and on facts which they themselves have learnt from experience in the light of reason? What he was saying was this is like as Christians, this is not stuff that we want to make major debates about. Because if we want to have all kinds of weird scientific debates and we're wrong about certain things, which we are going to be, by the way, because we don't know. He goes, then you're going to get into the scientific community and then you're going to kind of drive a stake in the ground on Genesis 1 when Genesis 1 is not the most important part of the Bible. It is Jesus, the Son of God, crucified and risen from the dead. That's the only reason the Bible exists. If Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, there is no Bible. If Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, we should go home and watch football. So my point is, is that when it comes to science, we'll, we'll take a, a, a humble approach and we'll be curious and we'll be interested. And so how long is the, is the universe or how old is the universe? I have no idea, but I do find it interesting though. Here's another question from, relating to the book of Genesis. Was there, was there a world before Adam? Um, I, I don't, I'm assuming like, like a whole different world. Who knows? I have no idea. The Bible doesn't say. Somebody asked me this, like a, a different question too. It was like, Although this is the one last week about aliens. Like, what if aliens exist? Does that mean the Bible's not true? No. It just means God's doing other things that he didn't tell you about. And he can do that if he wants to. So if there was, I'd say the answer is the same. If God made a world before Adam, he could have. That's his business. And if he doesn't want to tell me, you tell your kids everything you do? <laughs> there you go. Next question. Here we go. <laughs> so I'd like to know more about the pre-flood civilization. Um, prior to Noah, did fallen angels actually enter the body of men? Okay, so there's this weird story in the book of Genesis, but before the flood, right? And so it says this, that they're called the Nephilim. And so uh, there's two ways of looking at this story. So the way it's worded is this, and I won't take the time to work out the text because we got so many questions to go through, but the way it talks is, it says something like this. It says something like, and the sons of God came down and, uh, I'm looking at how many children are in the room, had relations with the daughters of men. That was pretty good, wasn't it? Having relations. Uh, so anyway, it says the sons of God came down and had uh, relations with the daughters of men. And it produced these like uh, the, the, these giants in essence. And so anyway, there's two ways of looking at it. And there's this, there's this book of Enoch that is a intertestamal period book, right? Meaning intertestamal means before the gospels were written, but after the book of Malachi would have closed the kind of the, the book on the Old Testament. There were these different books and Enoch didn't write it. What they would do is, is that it was normal in that day to like write something and then put somebody's famous name on the book to give it more traction. And so the book of Enoch talks about this idea as these were like fallen angels that came and had relations with humans and they created this weird hybrid race. And that was part of the reason why the flood took place was to take out this hybrid. It sounds crazy. Doesn't that sound weird? Okay, that's one theory. Here's the other theory. It was just hyperbole. The hyperbole would be this, these big, huge, godlike men. Like yesterday, I was at a powerlifting competition. These dudes are huge. There's this dude that literally was squatting over 900 pounds. Wow. And you know what? Again, in a hyperbolic statement, I'd be like, that dude is a god, right? So it's hyperbolic, it's hyperbolic language, which the Old Testament uses a lot and Jesus used even. So hyperbolic language would be like, 
these gods, these godlike men came down and, you know, and, you know, and had the relations and such. And so anyway, that, that would be the most like natural way of looking at the story. And then there's the more supernatural way of looking at the story. And the, and the answers, I have no idea. All right. So, <laughs> but it's, isn't that, a, that first one's crazy though? What? Yeah. It's crazy. Here's some really fun questions right here. So who actually wrote the Bible? Oh, tons of people wrote the Bible. There's this, I think, uh, a very elementary way of looking at the Bible, which is, oh, it's a book. So this is why people say, well, I don't believe the Bible. Well, really, what do you, what do you not believe? It's, it's a lot. It's like 39 Old Testament books, 27 new, 66 books of the Bible written by over 40 different authors over a span of thousands of years. And it is, it, we're talking about poetry, wisdom, literature. We're talking about apocalyptic prophecy. We're talking about histor- history and parable and storytelling. And some of it was just letters like, hey, I'm going to write my buddy a letter. I mean, it was just that. I don't think that the authors of scripture really knew they were writing scripture at the time. It wasn't like, you know what, I feel like I'm going to write some Bible today. And so let me just pin a little thing here. Um, you know, so w- what we would say is that it's inspired writing or God breathed that God, uh, somehow uh, there's this one professor that said this, he goes, you know, the problem with the Bible is, is that God let his children tell the story. <laughs> because, and so if you think about it, like, wouldn't it have been easier if God just give me a manuscript, give me the main bullet points, you know, all that stuff. And he goes, no, 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 God let his children write the story. So it's got all this interesting, fascinating. It's this. So anyway, that, the, the answer is Jesus never wrote a book of the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John writing about Jesus. And then the Old Testament is written by all kinds of different people. And so anyway, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question or not. No, it does. It does. Okay. And, it, and it's good to know. And I mean, a lot of friends always ask me, did God write the Bible? At least it's good to know. No, God didn't write the Bible, but he inspired it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, should you read your Bible every day? And what versions do you like the best? Uh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say this. I would say the, the reason why I want you to read your Bible, at least regularly, whatever that looks like to you is, is because, um, I think to be spiritually minded, Paul talked about this in the book of Romans, to be spiritually minded is life and peace, but to be carnally minded is death. And so you are already surrounded by so many different influences. I mean, think about it. Most, most of you guys, you wake up and you know, you don't read the paper anymore. Does the paper exist anymore? It does. Okay, maybe two of you read the paper. So, uh, you go on to CNN or Fox News. You go on and watch the 24-hour news cycle, and then or, or you watch the herd. I watch the herd in the morning. I'm kind of, yeah. Anyway, I'm a sports guy, so I watch a little bit there. And then, and then again, like what you read throughout the day and what you're listening to, and the music, and, and, and you're just being bombarded constantly with these. Uh, I would just say carnal in the sense of like natural, earthly, and it, many times ungodly ideas. And then you go home and you binge some Netflix and watch God knows what. And so you got enough. And so I think there's something powerful to saying, I'm going to start my day. Maybe in my day, maybe at my lunch break, but I'm going to take a moment and be spiritually minded. Because when you go too long without being spiritually minded, and by that I mean by setting my eyes and attention and focus on God, his plan for my life, his words, what he's up to. I think if you don't do that, you just drift and you can drift within a given day and then you start drifting over weeks and months and time periods. And so I think you should read the Bible in some type of regular way. And you got to figure out what works best for you, whether that I'm a night person. So I do not do, my brain does not turn on till at least 10 AM. And so, and that's after two cups of coffee. And, um, 
So I read a ton at night. And so anyway, do whatever works best for you. And as far as what version of the Bible works best for you, that's the same thing. Read the version that you like the best, connect to the best, enjoy the most, uh, change it up every once in a while. It's amazing what words do. Words pop differently in your mind. And so if you'll read a verse one way, um, change, like if you've read the same version of the Bible for the last several years, go get a different one. I'm telling you this. I used to have, I used to have the same Bible for a long time until somebody taught me this. And I could actually find a scripture by telling you that it was on the right side of the page and the top right corner or the whatever. And then I could quote it and then check it out. Just reading it. It's over here and it's, it's, it's worded just ever so slightly different. It would fire off differently in my mind and give me different word images. And so the answer is, is read them. Read different ones, change it up, whatever. I don't, I don't care. They're mostly all pretty good. And if somebody's here who's trying to actually start reading the Bible, where should they start? Oh, that's a good question. I would say, uh, if you've never read the Bible, I always say start in the New Testament and, and start probably with the book of John is a great way to start. That's like a traditional way to, Hey, here's where you start. And then I'd say stay in the New Testament for a while before you jump into the Old Testament. And then I think you take on the whole thing because it's all fascinating. And I want to encourage you. If you haven't had a chance, you can go and download something called you version. It is my favorite Bible app. And it's an app that gives you every single translation It's called you version and it's free. All right, Pastor Todd, if there is a difference, what's the major difference between the old and new Testament? 400 years. <laughs> that's, that's, there's a 400 year gap between the Old Testament. No, there's a, there, it, it really is this simple probably. The Old Testament, and be careful if you ever talk to your Jewish buddies, don't, you probably don't want just, it's the Hebrew Bible to them. So it could be a little offensive. It's just the Hebrew Bible. It's the story of Israel. That's really, if you could summarize what is the Old Testament, what we would call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible, it's the story of Israel. What is the New Testament? It is the story of Jesus and his church. It's, it's that, it's that plain, it's that simple. Cause if you look from Genesis, where the most of Genesis is a patriarchal story starting with Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, then Joseph, then you move into the Moses account, and then all of a sudden, here, here's the other thing I tell you about reading the Bible. If you're gonna read the Bible, make sure that you understand this about the Bible. The Bible is not laid out chronologically, it's laid out categorically. Okay, so like when you look at this thing, if you go to the table of contents, that's not chronological, that's categorical. So the first five books of the Bible is the Torah or the Pentateuch, right? So you got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Bam, that's one. And then you have these history books. So you have Joshua and Judges and on and on and on. Does that make sense? It's all history. Then it, boom, switches into poetry, right? So you have Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Songs and the book of Job. And then, bam, you switch over into prophecy. Now, this is the tricky thing about the prophecies is this, is that the prophets... If we could pluck them up, we would move them back into probably the book of Kings and Chronicles and put them with a certain king, a historical king that lived. And the prophet was normally, basically right after, yeah, David was like the greatest king of Israel. Then you had Solomon, the most prosperous king of Israel. And then after that, it goes, it goes bananas. There's a civil war and they kind of split up. So there's a northern kingdom they call Israel and a southern kingdom they call Judah. And basically almost all the kingdoms in the north, all the kings in the north were bad dudes. They were all wicked. So normally the prophets, they'll say something like Isaiah prophesied during the reign of blah, 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 blah. He's a king that was a king of Israel and they were bad dudes, man. They were anyway, the southern kings, it was, it was about 50, 50. There was some good ones. There was some bad ones. And anyway, so that's that. I would say that, but the difference between the old Testament is this too, because this is what Christians did. This is fascinating. So Christians, when, when all of a sudden the gospel was introduced to this non-Jewish world, 
they saw the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, like, oh my gosh, we want this. And so they, 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 you gotta remember, like the Gentiles had nothing to do with the Jewish religion, but then all of a sudden Jesus was raised from the dead and they believed this incredible good news. So they take the Old Testament and they're like, Jesus is everywhere in here. And they fight, start finding all of these prophecies and types and shadows. And so in some ways, the Old Testament has Christ concealed and the New Testament is Christ revealed. And so anyway, there's that dynamic going on. But the Old Testament is the story of Israel. The New Testament is the story of Christ and his church. It's great. All right. So Pastor how why does God not do miracles like he did in the Old Testament? Yeah, that's a good question. You know what? I, I remember, uh, I remember kind of picking up on this idea at some point and I can't remember where or when or who or how, but I remember it became clear to me that when you look at miracles, there's a rush of miracles at the starting point of any new era. Okay, so let me make sense of that. So like Moses is the start of the nation of Israel. And to see them come out of Egypt, there's a slew and a rush of miracles, right? And then um, it's almost like God uses miracles as a way to put a stamp on or to validate this new era. Does that make sense? So then the prophets come along. Well, the people that represented the prophets were primarily Elijah and Elisha. So you see a rush of miracles, right? And then, but it's not like there's miracles just all the time, every day, constant, crazy, over the top, whatever. Um, and then Jesus comes along and what do you see? You see a rush of miracles and the apostles are starting the new Testament church and you see a, a rush of miracles, but then you see miracles mostly kind of die down and then become more sporadic. And it's, and I think it's simple. I, I would say this, if miracles happened every day, they wouldn't be miracles. They'd just be normal. Like that's Tuesday. It's like Taco Tuesday. It's Miracle Monday. You know, it's just, this is what we do. So as far as the nature of them, though, I have no idea, man. That's, uh, anyway, does that make sense? Is that a good, okay. All right, perfect. Thank you. Um, well, we have, uh, you know, Pastor Shane uh, is a great friend uh, to Pastor Todd and the church. And if you guys uh, have not had a chance to listen, you go online. He's incredible. Uh, we got the chance to sit with him. And, uh, and he talked, uh, just about, we asked him about what, 20 questions or so, had two hours where we sat down with him and, uh, he shed his light, uh, just gave us some great insight and wisdom on, um, some of the questions that you asked. So I want you guys to, uh, watch the screens and here's Pastor Shane Willard tackling some of these questions himself. Hey everybody, this is it. Week two of our series called You Asked For It, sitting here with my buddy Shane Willard. Just throwing out your questions, getting somebody else's take on these things. So, Shane, so glad to have you. Uh, Throwing out the questions. Here we go. And again, we don't give you the easy ones. We want to make it hard on you. In the New Testament, there's referred to as this unforgivable sin called the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What is that? Um, So, I can tell you what they believed it to be. They... Once again, they're, they're just like us in the sense of they were struggling putting language around big things. And so, and so they believe that everybody's name was written in the book before time began. And the question is, is how can you be blotted out? And so they said, well, the only thing you could be blotted out for is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Then, of course, the question is, what's that? And they, they said, well, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is anytime you reject Messiah, utterly. And that's the important adverb, utterly. So you reject him utterly. Of course, the question is, well, how do I know when I've rejected him utterly? The questions just keep going. And so they said, oh, well, you're rejecting Messiah utterly when you call him Satan, right? Which is interesting because in Matthew, remember, there was that group of people, they said, well, 
you're, they're saying to Jesus, you casting out devils in the power of Beelzebub. And Jesus goes, really? Cuts. If I am who I say I am, that's the blessing of the Holy Spirit. So in, in historical context, they were calling him operating under the power of Satan. And he goes, uh, if I am who I say I am, that's the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And so the principle of it is, is that you never want to get deaf to the nudging of the Holy Spirit to move because if you ever get deaf to it, the issue will never be God quits reaching out to you. That, that's not the issue. The issue then the danger might be you won't be able to hear it even if he's screaming. And that's what you actually, that's what you see at the end of the book of Revelation. The last five verses of the book of Revelation is daunting because death and hell have been destroyed. All things have been made brand new. That's supposed to be when it's perfect, right? <laughs> and then you keep reading and there's a new city and the gates are always open and you've got people still sitting outside of the new city. Sorcerers, thieves, sexually immoral, Right? Where'd they come from? Like hell's been destroyed. They either got out of hell before it was destroyed or they got out of heaven, which I don't know. But it definitely doesn't fit what I was always taught. You got a group of people obviously outside that aren't in hell, but they're not in either. And what's interesting to me is the next phrase, this is the last five verses of the Bible, is, and the spirit and the bride are compelling them to come. You never sit out there. What are you doing? You can't live like that in here, but you go, hey, hey, what are you doing? And it doesn't say that they get up and run in, which is odd. Nor does it say they don't. It just says, don't add or subtract from this. <laughs> like, literally, don't add or subtract from this, or I'll get you. Grace and peace. Copyright 1977 NIV. That's literally, that's how it ends. And so you got, and, and that's, the, that's the whole problem with the, is this right or wrong, like, so universalist, they subtract the fact that there's still people sitting outside. And a lot of evangelicals, they subtract the fact that God seems to be calling people. And I think both might be missing the point. I think the bigger point is you have a God that is eternally reaching out to people, and you've got a group of people who've become so deaf to it they can't hear it. And that is the tragedy, and that is the problem, and that's what we want to avoid. And how do we avoid that? We just continue. I love the way Paul says it in Colossians. He says, just as you receive Christ, so continue to walk in him. And whatever your story is, whatever that is, in terms of how you received Christ, here's what is true about all of us. We responded to God. And so Paul's like, here's how you live. Just keep saying yes. Keep responding. Don't ever grow deaf. Don't ever grow deaf. Awesome. Next question. What are your thoughts on speaking in tongues in church? I think the question, of, first of all, I think tongues is a terrible word. I hate the word, actually, because like, what's the word? <laughs> do, 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 do you speak in, right? It's, tongues is, in, in 2018, is uh, is is a part of your body. And so speaking in tongues has this sort of weird thing. When actually, uh, the reason the word is translated tongues is from the 1600s where the word for languages was tongues. So a well-educated person um, would be saying, oh, he, he's a person of many tongues. And so uh, actually the word is just languages. And so first the idea is, is the divine ability to speak a language that you're not formally educated in. So it would just be this 
this thing. And the idea of it in scripture and in their thought was that spiritual language was a gift from God to um, to show us an intimacy. Uh, it was I, I don't mean to use a crude illustration. It was basically pillow talk. It was it was interpersonal coding language that a husband and wife would use uh, with each other, um, um, not in a crude way at all. But in, in there there are things that your wife might say to you that are interpersonally coded that even if she said it in a room full of people, no one would get it, but you'd get it. Right, and so there's it's it's that dynamic relationally, and so I'm okay I'm okay with with people using their spiritual language in church so long as it's not the center of attention, as anything that draws away from our focus and God consciousness is is it's not even right or wrong. It's just not wise. I think that I, I think it's I think it's okay as long as we're not looking down at anybody who doesn't. And, and I think this would be true about any of those questions, that it's okay to hold a certain view unless you're lording that view over people and then determining whether their value is m- bigger or smaller based on their agreement with that view. Um, and so I, I'm, okay, I'm okay with people um, with people utilizing their spiritual language. I, I would do it uh, on a regular basis, but just in a way no one would notice. And, and so it's, it's hard to answer that question like yes or no because... The answer would be it depends. You have somebody making a show of themselves, screaming, scaring children. Um, you know, well, well, well that, that would be obviously. But someone just quietly having a, um, having a true, authentic, God-conscious moment. How could we be against that? Love it. Well, that is a wrap on today. Make sure you get back in here next week, and we will go at this again with Pastor Shane Willard. You guys enjoying this or what? Has this been good? Awesome. All right, well, Pastor Todd, I got a few more questions for you. Uh, let me start off with this question right here. Um, man, do you believe that once a person is saved, are they always saved no matter what? Oh, yeah. You know what? This is, this is actually the first great question that I ever wrestled with as a Christian. So what happened was I was raised in a Southern Baptist church, and they they definitely – if didn't outright say it, definitely kind of alluded to like, yeah, once you're saved, as a matter of fact, I remember my Sunday school teacher saying that, because uh, in the Baptist church, you go to church, but then before church, you have Sunday school. Anyway, uh, so in, and my teacher said that. She goes, well, you know, once saved, always saved. And I was like, really? And I didn't know. And I was being, I was genuinely being curious. And so I was like, where's that in the Bible? And she goes, well, it's just in there. And I thought, yeah, but where? Like, what, what do, cause I was such, I was, uh, I was this new student of scripture and was so hungry to learn and know God and know the scriptures. And so I'm like, but where's that in there? Like, point me to a verse. Like, what do you, and she goes, well, it's just in there. Go talk to your pastor. And no lie, that's what she did. So I had this other guy who, um, he was a dear, dear friend of mine and he was a, he was a new believer and same like me, just hungry for, uh, knowing God and knowing the scriptures and, and diving into this thing. And so we were debating about it. And so he had, he had been taught the exact opposite his whole life. So he was like, Oh yeah, you know what? They used to be saved. Now they're splitting hell wide open. And it was like, sheesh. I'm like, 
my church teaches differently than that. And so we, so this was the first question I ever wrestled with. And I'm like, well, what does the Bible actually say? And again, when you talk to people, you'll have really, really smart people who kind of lean towards one side of the argument or the other. The way that I eventually, when I look at all the scriptures and I look at how they weigh out, I see some that seem to um, very clearly say that there were people that were once saved and are now no longer saved. There's a scripture in Peter in particular that comes to my mind. There's other scriptures that allude to the idea that once you're saved, you're always saved, but it doesn't say it outright and absolutely and clearly. So the, the, the thing that I finally settled on was this simple idea of this, because it's more of a, of, of a logical take to say this. If there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation, then there's nothing you can do to unearn your salvation. What was that noise? The Lord has spoken. The Lord has spoken. <laughs> So, so if, if the grace of God is that God loves you and that you don't get in based on how good you are anyway, then you can't be ungood to get out. Does that make sense? But I do think when you think about Romans, Romans says this, it says for the, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, I say gift, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. I just started thinking of it. Well, you know, I don't think you can earn or unearn God's love and grace, but I do think you could either receive a gift or reject a gift. And I suppose that if you in your heart got to a point where you said, I do not want God, I do not want his salvation, I completely reject that, then yeah, I I suppose you can. But I don't think it's like, well, I was really good this week, but, but you know, the week before that I was bad. So I probably didn't have salvation last week, but I think I definitely got it this week. It's, that's, that's a works-based kind of idea that you're, you're, you're somehow good enough to earn God's love and you're not. No one is good enough. That's why it's freely given as a gift of grace. And we want to make sure that we are always on the receiving end and being grateful for and thanking God for and leaning into the gift of grace. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, next question right here. Can you guys hear me out there? All right. Well, I'm going to talk a little louder. Here you go. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I couldn't wait for us to get to this question right here because we talked about it this week and I thought it was really good. Um, why don't more pastors preach on hell, sin, and judgment? Well, Nate, for me to speak on behalf of all pastors, I can't. I don't. I have no idea. I can tell you my view on this, though. So, like, I would say I grew up and I did hear preachers preaching on that. Uh, it scared the hell out of me, and so. Uh, and then I know a bunch of other preachers that don't. I can't speak to everybody. I'll speak to me. I, I had this um, I had this question come from a church member, and it was a personal email. Hey, pastor, what do you think? What's your take? We had a great conversation about it. It may even be a question that he liked so much that he thought everybody would, would want to be in on it. And so I don't know who, who posed this, but let me just tell you this. This is my view on it. The reason why I don't tend to preach a lot specifically on hell and judgment, I would say that we talk about sin constantly. We, we, we might frame it differently. I may not like speak of it. And I certainly don't spend week after week going through, hey, guys, here's the list. Make sure you go out and be good this week and don't do these things. I think by and large, we kind of know. And so I, I, I think sin comes out in the nature of the way that I teach, but not necessarily hell and judgment. And I'll tell you why. I think hell and judgment or let's put it like this. I think fear and guilt are very, very poor motivators. Like I think they're, they're very short-term motivators. They're very poor motivators. I even think that when you look at like there, I think they've done certain studies where they look at, hey, how many people go to these like hell things and get saved? And then how many actually stay with it? And it's not, it's not very good. I'll tell you the reason why I tend to not do it. it, it it's simply because Paul said it like this in the book of Romans. He said, it's the goodness of God that leads people to repentance. 
It's the goodness of God. So I preach a lot of goodness. I preach a lot of good news. I preach a lot about how great God is because I think that is a, a better motivator. The other reason that I feel like I, I probably don't is I, I remember looking at this very specifically and I asked myself the question, what do the apostles preach? And the apostles, there's not one sermon in the entire book of Acts where they talk about hell. It's just not, it's just not in there. And I thought, well, if they knew Jesus and walked with Jesus and knew what the mission was, I think they would have probably done that had that been the motivating thing. And they don't. The whole book of Acts, there's no, there's no sermon in there on hell. Hell's not mentioned in the book of Acts. And, and what is mentioned is this. Though. I'll tell you what, what is the repeated. There's two terms that are repeated throughout the New Testament. It says that Jesus went about preaching the kingdom. Or in the, uh, in the apostles, it says the apostles went about teaching the kingdom. Or it would say the word gospel. So both of those words are used by Jesus and the apostles. What is gospel? Gospel is literally just the Greek word for good news. So they went around preaching the what? The good news. What is the kingdom? The kingdom is a little bit harder for you and I to get our head wrapped around because we don't live in a monarchy and we don't have a king. Um, we have a democracy and a president. We'll vote you in and we'll vote you out. And so, uh, but, but they understood kingdom. And what a kingdom was simply this. What would your life look like if Jesus was your king and you were living in his dominion? What would, you, what would your life look like? What would your marriage look like if you treated marriage as if Jesus was your king and you were living his dominion? Meaning I was living in king's ways and honoring the king and all that I did. What would it look so, so when you think about why do we teach on marriage? Because I want to teach you the kingdom ways of marriage. What do, why do we talk about you and your work life? Because I want you to learn what the kingdom ways of work is. Because God is not just interested in your Sunday morning between 10 and 11.30 a.m. God is interested in every aspect of your life. And so that's living in the kingdom as Jesus is my king and I'm living in his dominion. So that's what we focus on in terms of what we, the other thing, and we said this at First Connect last week too, is we focus really, really heavily even on like practical application. And I think that comes from the, from Jesus's teaching as well is that, yeah, theology is rich and doctrine is rich. And I think there's a time and a place for that. But come Sunday morning, when you hear Jesus speak to the masses, he spoke in stories and parables and he spoke where the rubber met the road and what people were really dealing with. And so that's my take. I don't know about other people. It's great. I love it. I love it. In fact, a little sneak peek for two weeks from now, because we, we don't, we are going to speak about hell, correct? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so two weeks from now, we are actually going to dive right into making you understand what the Bible really says about hell and eternity. Heaven, the afterlife. Y'all have tons of questions about the afterlife. You want to know if your pet is going to heaven? I'll tell you. Who wants to know that? Anybody want to know that? Two weeks. How many just want to know? two weeks, you find out, okay? All right, here we go. Next question, just two more. Is Catholicism a different religion from Christianity? Ooh, I, I have to admit, I am not an expert on Catholicism. I am from the Southeast, and so there were not a lot of Catholics where I grew up. And so that, that, that's where the phrase is, in the South, there's more Baptists than Christians. And so uh, there weren't a lot of, I didn't grow up with a lot of Catholicism around me, and so I, I'm not an expert in any way, shape, or form. I would say it's definitely not, it's not different uh, completely, but there are differences. And so here's my, my very, very simple take on Catholicism is that I would say that if you sat down with any Catholic person, if you said, Hey, do you believe Jesus is the Christ, the son of God crucified and risen from the dead? The answer would be yes. I mean, I think, I think that's a pretty clear one. I think that that there are differences, and I don't think that they took away necessarily from Christianity. I think they added to Christianity. That's, that's the way I see it. Uh, I don't think there's anything that they would say that we're doing wrong, that we, we ought to take away. I think we're not doing enough. Or they, like I said, they added to. So for example, they have different ideas on like the Pope, like the, the, the authority of the Pope. Well, we don't, we just don't believe that. Uh, interestingly enough, when you read the book of Acts, like the idea of the Pope goes all the way back to St. Peter. Well, I mean, you see Paul confronting Peter 
and challenging his beliefs specifically towards the Gentiles. So like Peter didn't have this absolute authority over the church. As a matter of fact, if you really look at Acts 15 and the council and how they made decisions, you even see James, the younger brother of Jesus, seeming to have the pastoral authority over the church of Jerusalem. And so they did not treat Peter the way that we think about a pope having authority. And so that's, you know, kind of one of the things that they add, you know, they added kind of this idea of purgatory, which we'll talk about next week. They had this thing called about praying to saints. That's not in the Bible. They kind of add. So there's just certain things they add. The, 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 the elevation of the status of Mary, they, they elevate. And again, I don't see that in scripture either. I think that there's parts where they honor Mary. And then there's parts where there's this one story where uh, Jesus is preaching and teaching to a group of people. And they're like, hey, shh, your mom's outside, <laughs> which is always terrible to hear, right? Your mom's outside, dude. And he's like, who are my brothers and who are my sisters? But those that, you know, so anyway, so I, I, again, they just, they just add things that I don't see in scripture and that I think that, you know, I'll tell you this. Can I, I'll just, is this okay? We're just talking, right? So I had to do a funeral recently and it was a person that she came to our church and was a Christ follower and and what we would think of, but her whole family on that side was Catholic. And so the parents were adamant about doing a Catholic style funeral, but then they wanted, so what they wanted to do is a Catholic funeral and then have me come in and do a Protestant funeral, a Christian funeral. I don't know. I don't know what terms they would use. And I'm like, Hey, look, man, absolutely. I love you. I love the family, anything I can do, whatever you want. And so, you know, again, I got to get there early. You don't ever want to show up late when you're uh, performing a funeral. And so uh, I show up early and I'm catching the back end of this Catholic funeral. And, and again, I love my, my Catholic brothers and sisters. I love you. I love you. I love you. And, and there's definitely things that I just don't know and don't understand. I'm not an expert, but I remember seeing certain things that I felt genuinely uncomfortable about. I'm like, there was like this repeating of prayers and chanting of prayer. I'm like, what? This, this feel, this doesn't feel right. When you take a prayer, because if you look at the Lord's prayer, literally the verse or two before, go read the first two or three verses before the Lord's prayer. It specifically says, don't use this as some type of ritual or uh, reciting of, and it was, I'm like, how did we take the Lord's prayer and then totally miss the two verses before that? So anyway, I, I would just say this. I would say, I don't think it's a different religion because I, I, I both, I think that we're both saying, hey, Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, crucified and risen from the dead. But I would say that there's definitely differences uh, in, in some doctrines and certainly in our practice of worship. Thanks for that. Yeah, that's a great answer. And like I, you know, I encourage you just to go out and make sure that you uh, 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 just like dive into these questions yourself and, 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 you know, I've just prayed that no one gets offended, but um, I love what you said. We have a lot of Catholic friends and we have friends from all different walks of life and that's great. All right. Final question. And this one is uh, dear and near to my heart as well as many people have asked this. How do I answer my friend when they tell me that they don't believe God exists? That's a, it's a great question. I, I would say it depends because I think there's two types of people that, that I've had conversations with. If they are a person who is certain, right, and is dogmatic, and be like, no, I don't believe in God, da, 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 da. I mean, I, put it this way, I'm not going to argue with you, because I just, I've never argued with anybody. I've never been like arguing back and forth, and then be like, you know what, you won, I'm a believer now. <laughs> you did it, you beat me in a debate, now I'm in, I'm in. Uh, I've never, I've never done that. So I think anybody who's obstinate about their beliefs or, or just dogmatic about their beliefs, or maybe even there's a certain bitterness sometimes I find with certain atheists that when it comes to God, it's not, which is fascinating to think about because apparently you're mad at a being that doesn't exist. So I I would just say like, if, if, if they have a, a, 
a real angst or hurt or bitter or dog. Or what, I, w- I would just, man, I love you so much, dude. How's your fantasy football team doing? You know, what's up? That's what I would, I'm just telling you, I would love them because me, me arguing won't really won't help them. But, but, but if you're dealing with a person who's open at least to conversation, or especially if you're dealing with somebody who's cured, like, I don't believe in God. I just don't know how I can believe in God when, because what I would do is I would just ask them like, okay, well, like, what are your questions? Like, what is it in your mind is the biggest hurdle or obstacle to having faith in God? What is that? And then based on what they say at that point, I would begin to dialogue and debate and argue and, and jump into and lovingly do so. Um, cause I think this, and I am more, I am more confident in my faith in God now than I ever have been in the history of my life. And I've been preaching this thing since I was 17. So, um, I, I'm more confident now. I think, I think faith in God is more reasonable, more logical, makes more sense before you ever quote a Bible verse, before you even think about the Bible or Jesus. I think the existence of God just makes more sense than non-existence of God. This is why when you go back and look at like some of the ancient philosophers, like Aristotle, like Aristotle was figuring this stuff out before Jesus lived. He was like, no, from, he, he believed this. He believed if anything could change, God had to exist. And then he'd work you through this breakdown of like, well, if you believe change exists, then you believe something actualized upon the potential of another thing. And he goes, now for that thing to, cause you must have to say like, well, what caused that? What caused that? What changed that? What changed that one? And it, ultimately you get into, uh, in an atheistic worldview, you'd get into the, an infinite regress of causes, which is absurd, Right. You just, you just be doing this forever. It's like a turtle on top of a turtle on top of a turtle on top. It's like at some point there's a turtle at the bottom. And so, um, you know, uh, Plato, even Plato had his reasons for the existence of God. He referred to God as the singularity or as the one. And he, he talked about how like, it's not even that God created things and then set it in motion and stood back, but that he's actually sustaining all things exactly at this moment in time, because creation is more like music. And as soon as the, the musician stops playing music, the music disappears. And he would just, so, so their ideas of God were based purely on reason and logic. And that has nothing to do with like other arguments. Like, like some people, like I think we talked about this earlier when it comes to suffering. There's a moral argument. If there's anything within you that says and is compelled to say that is wrong or that is good and that is right. If there's anything within you that says that, that only can come from God. Now, subjectively, you can feel that way. But at its core, it's because it's, every atheist has had to like admit this. If God does not exist, there are no morals. Only that which is subjective. They have to admit that because you're just space dust. Space dust doesn't have morals. Again, the absurdity of like, because this is what you have to believe to say that there's no God. You have to believe that something came from nothing. That's why they were posing the question, why does anything exist at all? Like you exist, right? Well, we hope. Unless this is all a dream and we're living in the matrix or you know, something like that. But, but do, do you even exist? If anything exists at all to, to have a worldview in which God doesn't exist, you'd have to say that something comes from nothing. That literally out of nothingness, which is that which rocks think about. That, that, that out, and then you have to believe this. You have to believe that out of no life, even if there was just matter, that all of a sudden life sprang into existence out of no life. And have no expl- and, and again, this is where scientists are so funny because they... They really do, hardcore dogmatic scientists, they, they put the idea of intelligent design or a creator, they just shelf it and say, we won't even allow that to be in. But the most scientific evidence says this. Like the Big Bang Theory, for example, like they, they, they pretty much 
everybody concludes that, hey, we, we're all right about this, that the universe is expanding. It has a singular starting point, And that singular starting point is the point of all matter, all space, all time. Everything had a singularity. Do you know what the most reasonable explanation is? Is that something created it. Something. But that something would have to be immaterial. Because to create material, you'd have to be immaterial. Or that material would have already existed and something would have... And then you're back into the absurdity thing. So you'd have to say that something was timeless. Something was immaterial. Something was outside of space and time somehow. Something was... um, incredibly powerful and incredibly intelligent to create something so complex because the atheists now different people have different views that stump them. The atheists will straight up say that the most challenging viewpoint for them is the, is the, is the argument from intelligent design. Cause at the level of the cosmos, all the way down to the level of the, the, the cellular level of the DNA, things are so stinking complicated and so fine tuned and specifically the DNA. So seemingly designed and coded with such specificity that they're like, I, we don't know what to do with that. And that's the one that most scientists, they, just, they have no idea what to do with that one. Because the numbers are overwhelming. When you get into like exponents and, well, the odds of this happening are 1 in 10 times the 146. It's just, it's just too many zeros. It's overwhelming. Um, so anyway, I, I would just say, if you ever struggled with your faith, um, there are answers out there. There's really, really good answers out there. And that there, you, 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 the idea of the existence of God or God being real to me is the most logical and reasonable explanation to everything that you see and everything that you experience. Why do you still, what are those obstacles and how can I help you overcome those? And so I would say you as a Christ follower, you don't have to know everything at the nerd level. But like having at least a basic knowledge of this stuff is really, really healthy if you want to engage with somebody about their faith. And so I would just encourage you, I'm more confident now in my faith in God than I ever have in the history of my life. And I think it's, it's just growing and building. And so anyway, I, I would just have that conversation, keep having that dialogue, maybe recommend some books, whatever it is that there are questions where I'd dive in. I mean, I love that. I mean, for, like for me, I didn't grow up in the Christian faith, and it's not really what you say, but how you say it. And, yes. And, and it really comes down to, I mean, you got to speak the truth in love. Amen? And so, great. Did y'all have fun with this or what? I mean, this is a ton of questions. You guys asked all the questions. We get to answer them. And so I want you guys to tune in to next week. Next week is going to be really special where we get to answer all your social questions, uh, questions on divorce and, and dating. Yeah, we're and, doing social issues next that's week. That's right, social issues next week. So make sure you invite a friend, and we're going to have a lot of fun with it. Next week is going to be dicey. Like, this one was easy. This next week is going to be dicey. So if you want to see fireworks, get in here next week. And so uh, if you could stand up on your feet with me today, uh, thank you so much for your questions. If you have more questions, keep submitting them. We'll keep answering them as best we can. We literally, it's 1139 and we're cutting short. We, we had more questions that we just couldn't get to. And so uh, thank you for your questions. Thank you for your curiosity. Thank you for your humility. Um, I, I want to encourage you today as you walk out of this door, just know that God is real and that he is love. And that he absolutely wants to be engaged in your life. Not on a Sunday morning between 10 and 11.40 today. But not, not just in that time. But we're talking about when you lay your head on your pillow at night. When you're on your commute and that girl or that guy cut you off. When, I'm, I'm telling you when you're doing the family thing. when you, God absolutely is real. And the cool thing about God, I think, is this. Is that the Bible doesn't speak of his, of his love. But it speaks of his presence. And I want you to know that no matter where you're at, God is present. And you have the ability to call on him at any moment of any time and know that God is there. God is simply present. He wants to be involved in your life. 
Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Lord, we thank you for today for the opportunity just to talk, to conversate, to kick over cans, to, to, to dive into deep questions. And so, Lord God, I pray for everything I didn't answer. God, would you help them and guide them, lead them in truth, but God, lead them in your love, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here today. Thanks again for listening to the New Beginnings Podcast. For more information on New Beginnings Church, please visit us online at nbchurch.tv.